Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the science of success the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Have you seen Star Wars? Are you drawn to the light side of the force? Or do you gravitate to the power of the dark side? In this week's episode, we're diving into the two sides of influence. Surprisingly, there are two very different schools of thought on the best ways to influence someone. But which style is more effective, and what are the pros and cons of each of them? In order to get to the bottom of this debate, we brought in some incredible experts to make their case on each of these topics. First, we'll dig into the light side of influence. You'll hear from Robin Dreek. Robin began his career in law enforcement in 1997 after serving in the United States Marine Corps. Robin has directed the behavior analysis program of a federal law enforcement agency and has received training and operational experience in social psychology and the science of relationship management. He's currently an agent of the FBI and the author of It's Not All About Me, The Code of Trust, and the newly released Sizing People Up. Then, representing the dark side of influence, we'll hear from Chase Hughes. Chase Hughes is the founder of Ellipsis Behavior Laboratories and the Amazon best-selling author of the Ellipsis Manual. Chase previously served in the U.S. Navy as part of the Correctional and Prisoner Management Departments. Chase speaks on a variety of topics, including brainwashing, attraction, and frequently develops new programs for the U.S. government and members of anti-human trafficking teams around the world. Both of these experts have incredible backgrounds and some amazing stories. In the end, how you use these incredible powers is up to you. Which side are you going to be on? Sign up for our email list and let me know. I'll even tell you my own personal affiliation, Jedi or Sith. As always, thanks for listening to the show. First up, let's hear from Robin Dreek. 
You have an incredible background and story, and, and some of the work you've done at the FBI is fascinating. Would you share kind of your, your journey with the, with the listeners? Yeah, sure, Matt. Um, it's, it's actually pretty funny and remarkable, not in the things I've achieved, but because in what I've done with my life and career, completely opposite of what my biological and genetic coding's for. And what I mean is this, and, and you've read part of it, you know, my bio and background. Yes, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, Marine Corps officer. I came into law enforcement and, and the FBI in 1997. I served in New York City, Norfolk, FBI headquarters, Quantico. I ran our behavioral team, all those things, you know, they sound pretty neat on paper and they kind of scream at you hard charging type a but in reality and which i am there's no doubt um, but in reality when you work in the world of counterintelligence like i do um it's completely backwards from the behavior you really need for success and what i mean by that is what i learned when i first got assigned to new york city uh, working counterintelligence uh, i was very fortunate that i, I got on a, a squad uh, of individuals that had probably 20, 25 years in the FBI all doing that job. And and working counterintelligence is different than anything else in the FBI or really in the world. Uh, I, I, it is related mostly anywhere else to sales. You know, I, I basically sell a concept that protecting America is a great idea. And the way I'm going to compensate you for that is through a great relationship with me, mostly not much else, uh, you know, government funding me what it is. It really comes down to, you know, this feeling of patriotism and having a great relationship. That's going to be the inspiration behind why people are going to want to cooperate with you. And also working in counterintelligence, um, it's all leadership because the people that I interact with day in and day out, they don't commit crimes. I mean, it's very rare that, you know, my whole main job in New York was to recruit spies. Um, 99.99% of the time, they're just getting regular information, open source information, and sourcing it to an individual. So it has value. Um, most of the information, is, like I said, it's open source. Who it comes from makes it valuable. And the people they interact with are great Americans, you know, or citizens as well. So, you know, the, the challenge is, all right, so if you're a hard charge in type A that's used to trying to convince and coerce and manipulate people into giving you things, it doesn't work. It just does not work because, you know, as soon as someone walks away from any engagement with you, think to themselves, wow, I really wonder what he really wanted. You've totally failed because there's a, there's doubt, there's subterfuge, and people are, you know, very, very keen to pick up on these things um, because – what generally happens, and we've all experienced it, whether it's been a, a you know shady car salesman or any other kind of salesman, you know that is actually there for profit and gain to take advantage of you. People pick up on that because there's incongruence between people's words and the things they say, which they might be saying all the all the slick lines, everything really great, but their body language becomes very incongruent with what they're saying, and our our ancient mammalian brain really picks up on these things, and it gives us that creepy feeling. Well, when you actually genuinely make it about everyone else, and that's what the code of trust is about, how to make it about everyone else but yourself, but you have a lot of clarity, you know, the destination that you hope to move to, but you realize that you can only do that through being an available resource to the prosperity of others. And so that's what the whole thing is about. Um, I I did this for years on, on the street. I got on our behavioral team. And again, I, I, I'm not naturally born leader, not naturally born doing this, but I was surrounded by greats that were showing me and modeling the way. And so you learn these things through on-the-job training, osmosis, and, and observation. But what really started happening was uh, I started writing because I was asked to write about it. And when I got down to Quantico, when they started asking me to teach about it, you start making this this art form um, as, it, as it is in an personal art form, a, a paint-by-number. So you start giving labels and meanings of things so people can start recognizing the behaviors they've already been doing. I call it the, the new car effect. 
And I always get a puzzled look when I say that. But really what it comes down to, you know, the days you buy your new car or any car, all of a sudden you start seeing that vehicle everywhere. I mean, I own a, I own a, a Tundra. The day I bought my Tundra, I swear, I think 300 people in my town bought the same darn truck because it has that label and meaning. So that's all I do is I give labels and meanings to all the behaviors that we do when we're having a great relationship. So you can repeat that behavior and understand also the ones that you've might have failed at or were more challenged at to understand exactly what you were and weren't during those situations so you can stop doing those behaviors. So uh, that's been the journey. Probably the the Code of Trust came about uh, around 2013. I was running our behavioral team and uh, someone asked me to do an article again on counterintelligence and I said, well, I can't really talk about hooky spooky spy stuff. But I said, ooh, let me talk about what my team does. And I had never really sat down and contemplated, you know, when I sit down and strategize, you know, any kind of operation I'm doing, what am I actually doing and then I reflected on every instance of my entire life my career in the Marine Corps in the Naval Academy and with my friends family kids I started realizing that well in every encounter all I'm ever doing is strategizing trust and I came out with uh, the five steps of trust and all of a sudden when I gave myself that green tundra effect as I call it or the new car effect I started seeing the the, the code of trust everywhere and it, it's become my guiding light in my life. I, I live it every day, um, and it, it creates it creates amazing prosperity as a byproduct. But if you the core thing of the code of trust is if you focus on yourself, it undermines the entire process. So it really comes down to first and foremost, um, good healthy relationships, open honest communication, and to be an available resource for the prosperity of others. When you honor those things first, everything else falls into place. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of 40, almost 49 years of my life. <laughs> you know, the the funny thing about, and there's so much to unpack there, there's a number of things I want to ask you about. One of the most fascinating things to me about fields like counterintelligence is that there's there's no room for error, right? Like these tactics have to work in, in many cases, literally life and death situations. And so I think it's such a beautiful format for for really, it's almost a crucible for cultivating the absolute most effective strategies for doing something. And then, you know, you talked about how your old sort of perception of what leadership meant isn't necessarily what actually works and actually changes behavior. Can you tell me about how that, that transformation took place and, and how the old conception of kind of the hard charging, manipulating, pressuring, bullying framework of leadership doesn't really work? Yeah. Absolutely. The, you know, I mean, my former leadership um, is what I witnessed, you know, the things we witnessed between the ages of nine and 19, you know, really form our generational outlook on the world because our prefrontal lobe is not fully developed yet. So the emotional impresses we have really form how we see the world. And so, you know, during those years, you know, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. I want to be a Navy pilot, aerospace engineer, and astronaut. You know, my former leadership is what I watched in the movies and TV. And the first movie I saw on leadership that I thought was strong leadership was, you know, was Patton and, uh, you know, screaming at people, yelling, kick them in the butt, poking them in the eye. I figured leadership was getting people to do what you want. And so that's what I that's the behavior I was modeling. And and at a young age, you know, many people get rewarded for that kind of behavior because, I mean, just think of sports teams you've been on or clubs or or any other kind of position where, you know, an adult or a superior asks you to accomplish something by, you know, with a group of people. And you ask politely all the group of people to do what was asked and no one. No one, you know, goes along with what it is you want them to do. And so, 
you now get chastised for being a weak leader. Now, next thing you do is you yell and scream and these people do what you want them to do. And now you're rewarded for being a good leader. You know, so the negative behavior on on convincing and controlling gets rewarded. So you start at a young age thinking that's the way in order to get things done. In reality, what you just did is you manipulated people uh, through fear and reprisal to to take action. And the action they're giving you is probably about five, maybe five to 10 percent effort just to get you to shut up and go away. And when you're and that and that can work fine in, in situations where there is a, a position of reprisal that people can take against you. But again, you're not going to get the best out of anyone because, you know, loathing uh, starts seeping in against you and, and people are just going to stop performing. And that makes the the now leader, you know, look extremely bad and can't be productive. And that leader now thinks, well, what what's happened? Why am I not being productive? Why am I, why am I no longer getting promoted? Well, they now think they've gotten soft. And so the way to under to undo getting soft, they think they have to get harder. And so this is where the bully in the workplace starts and that kind of leadership. But in reality, what I found both in the Marine Corps and coming in the FBI, especially working, like you said, counterintelligence, where, you know, I get up every day hoping I don't make uh, a mistake and uh, cause myself a humbling moment because every relationship is potentially, you know, helping our national security and protect our country, protect my community. And I don't have the luxury of, you know, making mistakes. I mean, I, I, I'm extremely hypercritical of myself and, and all my conversations and dialogue. So I, I care passionately about not making a mistake. And what I found is, especially when you work in, in the world, as I described to you, there are no criminals. Very, very few are criminals. And even if someone is manipulated good naturedly by accident by someone trying to take advantage of them, they're very unwitting that they've even done anything wrong. And so I, in my entire life and career, the last 20 years, I've never made an arrest in the area I've done. I, I've only done things that, you know, hopefully build relationships strong enough so we can garner the information we need to protect our country. And so when people don't have to talk to you and you can't rely on your title and position, you better know what to do. And that's what the other thing I really found out, too, is that people do not care about your title and position whatsoever. I mean, <laughs> be FBI in New York City, knock on the front door and, and see what people think about you if you start showing a badge and everything. <laughs> it really comes down to not your title and position, but how you treat them. And if you treat them and talk in terms of their priorities, you validate them, you validate their context, you don't argue um, their point of view on things, and you and you genuinely, and this is the real key to this, you've got to be genuine, sincere about your desire to understand them as a human being and their motivations and priorities in life. Before we get in too deep into that, because I really want to go go deep down that track, tell me about, you mentioned the importance of, of, of kind of really honest self-awareness and, and self-assessment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> as in Marine Corps, there was a uh, the 14th leadership principle I learned was uh, know yourself and seek self-improvement. One of my more humbling aha moments in life was I remember I was uh, stationed at Cherry Point. I was uh, I was in the air wing, but on the ground side. And so we were really bottom heavy. We had a lot of junior officers and I think we had about 14 or 15 of my rank as second lieutenant. And I remember my first assessment, I was ranked last out of them all. And I remember you know, walking up to my major uh, that rated me and saying, all right, I get it. I'm doing something wrong. Wrong. What am I doing? And he and all he could say was, you just need to be a better leader. And it was very subjective. And so I didn't understand what that meant, but it bothered me. You know, it's like, all right, I am doing something wrong. And, and what I started discovering was and everyone has this. 
that what I thought I was projecting to the world was not what the rest of the world was seeing. And and so taking an honest self-assessment is actually hearing the words people say about you and to you, but really ideally about you, where you can be a fly on the wall and hear people's honest impression of you. And, and this is not a self-loathing or woe is me if you hear something you don't like. It's an assessment of what people see when they see you. And it's funny, the... I often, anytime I bump into someone I knew 25 years ago, I usually give them a big hug and thank them for tolerating me 25 years ago in their lives. And the one thing that I've heard, you know, when I apologize for being a self-centered jerk years ago, they said, no, 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 Robin, you were just intense. And when I hear something twice, I do an assessment of it. And so I analyze what intense looked like to other people. Intense looked like just me being a good guy to me, because very rarely do people get up in the morning and say, all right, today I'm going to treat people really horribly and be a jerk. But ultimately, that happens sometimes, not because we want to, but because there's this incongruence again between what we feel and uh, what's get hijacked that comes out of our mouth because of our ego, vanity, and insecurities. And so I defined that. I looked at intensity and I actually saw what that meant. And it's, it's a typical type A response. And it's, you know, you have something you're trying to achieve, uh, a goal of some sort, a very, a very tangible means goal, I call them, instead of ends goal. Ends goals are states of mind, and I'll tell you more about that later maybe. But a means goal is, you know, I want a promotion. I'm trying to do well on this project. I want a better uh, salary. I want to move. All those things are very, very specific, and we uh, we become so focused on them that we totally disregard, not by intent, but by our genetic design, that anyone else around us is doing anything. And we become wholly focused on what we're trying to do. And again, we're not regarding really people around us that are actually might be working on other things that you're not making yourself available to or, or pretty much ignoring. And you combine that with a tempo that is out of sync uh, with the others around you because, again, you have that, that higher tempo of activity. It really becomes off-putting to other people, and it looks like a narcissistic, megalomaniac jerk. And is that in, is, was that in the heart and soul of the individual, the type A? No. They are totally clueless about this until you actually have those aha moments and listen to the people around you. Take feedback and ask yourself, is that the behavior I want to be exhibiting or not? And if it's not, what can I add to myself to have that behavior stop being that way? And again, especially when you're working in areas and fields where whether you're in sales and doing cold calls or and, and people are already dealing with individuals and companies that give them products and services. So why should they want to go with you? Why should they even listen to you? If you come across with that kind of intensity, people are just going to shut down because you're not really regarding them. You're more focused on what you're trying to do rather than being a resource for others' prosperity. So that was that was probably the, the first time where I, I had that. I, I've had multiple, you know, I think everyone does, you know, multiple moments in your life where you create yourself a humbling moment. You know, every day I wake up and I, I hope I don't cause another one that day. I haven't had one in a while. And it's, you know, it's important to keep that ego and vanity in check because when you don't, the mouth will runneth away and you become self-centered and focused. And there's no reason why anyone, any individual should want to listen to you if you're not talking in terms of what's important to them. And I think, you know, that, that segues into one of the other really, really important things that you mentioned and you, and you write and talk a lot about, which is all of these strategies of influence that have, that, or sorry, not influence, because we talked about this before the show, but all of these <laughs> strategies have a root in not focusing on yourself and focusing really deeply on the other person. Can you tell me about mm-hmm. the importance of that? 
And sorry, you know, the, the influence. Influence is, is, is important to, to understand how to influence and what influence is. But what I found is, and this is part of where all these things came from, the focusing on others, influence still has a connotation in my mind when you, when I use the word. Again, this is purely me. There is no right or wrong. There just is meanings and definitions. It still has a connotation of, of influencing another individual to do something that's in my mind. And when and when you understand, you know, how that works and what's going on there and you want to be more effective at influence, what happens is you start realizing that, well, I just need to move beyond influence because I need to focus on other people and what their priorities are and, and be a resource for them. Because then then what you do is you start moving into the realm of inspiration. And when you're in, in the realm of inspiration, it's completely about the other person. So here's how this process works and, and why it's important. Individuals, you know, you go back to ancient tribal man where, you know, tribes of 30, 40 or 50, it was the first form of social welfare, healthcare, and survival. If you were not part of a tribe, the likelihood of your genetic coding being passed on was extremely low. So our brain rewards us for being valued and part of a collective and a group and a tribe. And so if we use language that demonstrates value and demonstrates that we are vested in you and your prosperity, however you dis- however that individual defines prosperity, they're, they're naturally going to keep listening to you and keep regarding you and, and want to collaborate because it's, it's in their best name nature because it's in their best interest to do so. And so, you know, when I'm anytime I I have a project or something, again, this isn't, you know, you can make it all about someone else and many people in life do, but they then get accused of being a carpet and being walked over. Well, that's where the code of trust comes in and and make sure that doesn't happen in the sense that the first step in the code of trust is understanding what your goals and priorities are, what it is you're trying to accomplish. But the second part of that first question of what your goal is reversing it now and think in terms of, so why should someone want to? And and here's the difference between that, that influencing and manipulating or anything like that, people then start thinking, how can I make them want to do that? Or how can I influence them to do that? What the code of trust is and what I'm talking about in order to make it about the other person is I don't think about that at all. I start reversing. I think I think in terms of how can I inspire them to want to? That's the key. Because if I'm thinking in terms of inspiring someone to take action, because I know what my goals are. I give myself my, my own new car effect by naming and stating the things I'm hoping to achieve. And now I completely let go of those because I reverse it. Just like you don't have to try to see the car once you bought it. You just see it. That's why giving labels and meanings to things that are important to you, that's all you have to do. You don't have to try to make an effort because if you make an effort on your own behalf, you're now manipulating or influencing or anything else because it's all about you and you're only slightly regarding another person. I let go of it. It's got label and meaning. Now I reverse it. I think in terms of how can I inspire someone to maybe align with me? In order to inspire someone, I have to know what their priorities are, long-term, short-term, personal, professional. I have to talk in terms of those priorities. I have to demonstrate their value and I demonstrate value by four really simple statements I always include in conversations, emails. I'm going to seek thoughts and opinions because when I demonstrate that I'm seeking your thoughts and opinions, I'm demonstrating and you have value. Human beings do not ask other human beings what they think unless there's they, they have value. So when you do that, people's brains are rewarded with dopamine because you're demonstrating their affiliation. When they're affiliated, that means it's good for their survival. Dopamine is released in the brain, oxytocin, serotonin. All the pleasure centers are firing because you're demonstrating value and you're demonstrating affiliation. So next, I'm also going to talk in terms of their priorities. If I don't know what their priorities are, I'm going to ask them what are their priorities. 
Next, I'm going to validate them. And validation, it's it's a beautiful, very, very broad term that demonstrates that you're trying to understand without judgment the human being you're engaging with. doesn't mean you necessarily agree because this isn't about agreeing with and just placating. This is about validation, which means understanding. And finally, I empower you with choice. Again, we do not give people choice unless we value them and um, there's affiliation. Now, here's the fun part. If I know what your priorities are and I make myself available resource for your priorities and your prosperity, and I already know what mine are because I've already labeled them before I even engage. When I empower someone with choice, I'm empowering them with choice with naturally overlapping priorities, mine and theirs. And then it's up to them whether they accept it or not. And if they don't, that's fine too because it's all about them, their timing, their perspective. And here's what I can guarantee. I can absolutely guarantee you if I know exactly what your priorities are, as as I said again, long-term, short-term, personal, professional, and I'm making resources available for you, your success and prosperity in those areas, I guarantee you're going to take that action. There hasn't been a time yet when it hasn't. And now what happens is is what most time triggers is that there's the need to, to reciprocate by other individuals uh, that you're a resource for their prosperity. You can't keep a scorecard. You know, one of my things I love to say is leaders don't keep scorecards because then there's an expectation of reciprocity and then you really did it for you and not them. I don't keep a scorecard. I, I I give, I let go, and I just I just wait. I just wait, and it's really been pretty ridiculous when you honor um, the core of the code, which is that healthy, professional, or happy relationship, and you're an open, uh, open, you know, uh, honest communications. Everything falls into place. It just it it flows very very easily, and the more you create these healthy relationships with more and more people, they actually have a, and it's also a very calming effect on your own mind because you can't really engage people successfully if you're emotionally hijacked all the time, you know, stress, anger, discontentment, resentment, frustration, all those things, cloud or judgment. The code of trust clears the cloud and you can actually objectively see exactly the path to where you're trying to go and more importantly, where others are trying to go. And one of the things you touched on, and, there's, and again, there's so many things I want to dig into from that, but one of the things you touched on was this idea that in, in the counterintelligence world, in many cases, people either don't want to reach out to you or explicitly are trying to avoid contacting you and you have to almost reverse engineer them wanting to reach out to you. Can you talk about that strategy and, and more broadly about the strategy of, of, of getting someone's brain to reward them for engaging with you? I'll start with your last question first because it'll it'll be easier to answer the first. And if I if I lose track of it, because as you can tell me, I can talk forever about this, and I I get sidetracked in my own brain on it. So I apologize if I do. So the the goal for me at every engagement with everyone is to get their brain to reward them chemically for engaging with you. And we've already covered how that works. You know, if you demonstrate value and you demonstrate affiliation and you understand someone's priorities and you talk in terms of their priorities and you and even more importantly, if you have resources for them to move forward on those priorities and their own prosperity as they define it, their brain's going to reward them. Guaranteed. I guarantee you shields will be down. There will be no resistance and there'll be a great dialogue uh, and conversation. And where it goes from there is really up to them and their tempo. And so that it's a very simple concept that I just keep in my mind is that, you know, what does every human being I'm engaging with, what do they need, want, and dream of? And just make sure that I'm talking in terms of those things. Oh, and honesty is really the key to this too, because if you're making stuff up, do people pick up on that? Absolutely. You know, and that's where you get start get that incongruence of of you know the the mind and the heart and, and the mouth of what's going on. So when I do when I do validation, like I'll I only start out conversations 
especially if they're going to be a little more challenging than others, or if it's a brand new person I'm meeting, I, I always start out with a specific non-judgmental validation of a strength attribute or action that I've, I've witnessed um, in their life or in immediate time or anything. And if I have nothing to validate in that opening statement, the biggest thing I'm going to do is I'm going to validate their time because people's time is very valuable. And to have them share it with me, I'm, I am beyond grateful for it. So if I have nothing that I can validate at the start, I'm going to validate the time because again, I'm just very grateful for it. So now, now translating that into, you know, working in counterintelligence, it, to me, it's really working anywhere that, you know, sometimes you can deal with people on uh, that might not want to have a relationship with you. And that's completely okay. As a matter of fact, one of the most challenging, you know, every now and then you hit these situations where, you know, you got a cold call to try to, you know, get a piece of information or just a question answered on something and people do not want to engage with you. So the first thing I do in those situations is I validate that, yeah, I can honestly, I understand how you don't want to deal with someone like me from the United States government. I completely understand. If you want me to leave you alone, uh, if you just respond to this and tell me to leave you alone, I'll do it. But if not, if you can provide this and then here's the reason why I'd like that, it might be of a help to others. If that's something that interests you, let me know. Again, just respond to me if you don't want me to engage you and I'll leave you alone. That way I at least get a response. And what am I, what did I just do? I talked in terms of them, their priorities, because what's their priority? Leave me alone. Again, I don't judge. You can't judge whether that priority is aligned with yours or not. Who cares? It's all about them. And that those are the ones that are, are resistant. But in all honesty, the the times that happens are exceptionally rare, exceptionally rare, because, again, if you're talking in terms and figuring out what someone's needs, wants, dreams and aspirations are a personal professional. And you're talking in terms of those, you're seeking to understand those, you're validating those, and you and you bring to, to bear resources to further those for them. Why wouldn't they talk to you? The only reason they wouldn't is either they lied about their priorities, their subterfuge, or some other thing that they didn't make you aware of. And so, again, it's not what you did or didn't do. It's all on them. And, and it's not going to be a very good relationship anyway because they don't want one. So why force it? You know, you can save a lot of time and just – Break contact, you know, and also and then even in those instances, you got to leave them feeling better for having met you and having engaged with you those brain rewards and why branding branding is everything. You know, I have no problem if someone tells me they don't want to talk or don't want to share, or don't want to cooperate because, you know what, if not you, it'll be someone else. And I'll, I'll never get another one else if you break contact with me and and you and I ruined your day. I mean, just think about this, you know, so say you met me and we had a conversation nine to 10 o'clock in the morning and it went horrible. I, I, I tried to convince you of things. I could try to cajole you, try to manipulate you. And you just walked away feeling horrendous. Whether you even talked about me or not for the rest of the day, it put you in a bad mood. And now everyone you touch in your entire sphere of influence, that entire day or even a couple of days, maybe a week, maybe a month, who knows? They're, they're touching you and seeing, you know stress, anxiety, all the, all the negative emotions you cause, and it leaks out where it came from. It came from this engagement with this Robin guy. Now, and contrary to that, if I leave you feeling better for having met me and I made you feel great for the conversation, your brain's rewarding you, I demonstrated your value, I'm talking in terms of your priorities, even if you say no, you don't want to cooperate or, or have a relationship or if you're in sales, you know, buy what you're selling, and if you're completely fine with that and you let it go, now for the rest of the day, weeks, month again, someone's leaving the engagement with you with very positive emotions in a great state of mind. And people like to feel that way. And so they're going to start seeing that. And so you, in other words, you cause the common effect here. It's going to cause a common effect in their entire sphere of influence. And again, that goes to branding. So I never think ever about just the one person I'm engaging with. I think about their entire sphere of influence from that point on. 
And I always want good branding. And again, if someone doesn't want to engage, that's fine. And it's funny because when you empower people with choice with walking away and not dealing with you, you know how many times I've actually had someone walk away and not want to deal with me? Zero so far since the code of trust. And why? Because I keep talking in terms of them. People love, I mean, think about this. On, on average, you know, think to yourself, how many times a day do you hear words in every single statement that someone says that are completely about you? Meaning, is someone asking your thoughts and opinions? Is someone talking in terms of your priorities? Is someone empowering you with choice? Is someone validating your thoughts, ideas, and context of how you see the world in every single statement you say? No. I mean, on average, I think even the, our closest friends and, and family maybe do it two to five percent a day. You know, when you actually do that in a hundred percent of the time when you're engaging someone, and so every statement coming out of your mouth, their brain is rewarding them for you uh, for being around you. Why wouldn't they want to be around you? And so one of the core principles of inspiring people is, is the idea you just talked about, which is essentially this notion that if you focus really deeply on other people, making your statements about them, speaking in terms of their priorities, seeking out their thoughts and opinions, in, in a very biological sense, their brain is releasing hormones and chemicals that are making them like you, want to engage with you, and want to be mm-hmm. part of what you're doing. 100%. And again, it goes, you know, evolutionary psychology, you know, the, the ancient tribal brain, it's rooted in us. I mean, I, the best analogy I can give to, you know, without, you know, going into, uh, you know, the I think it was uh, April around 2012 that Harvard did a study where they actually wired up people's brains and saw that when people were talking about themselves and their priorities, dopamine was released. But the easy, easiest demonstration you can do of this is I always ask this question when I'm dealing with a, a crowd that I'm engaging with in training. I always ask how many of you have actually traveled over Sees for pleasure. A lot of hands go up. I said, great. What happens when you bump into another American? And without fail, you know, everyone starts smiling and laughing. And yeah, because what you initially do is you ask, well, where are you from? And if they're from anywhere even near your state, you, you start collaborating and thinking about things that you've been doing in the same areas. You start thinking about places you might have traveled in the same time frame. Then you actually start talking about, do you know so-and-so? You keep trying to build linkages because your brain is saying, ah, someone from my tribe and it brings comfort. So we keep trying to build that comfort. That's why when you, you know, go any place, you know, and you're taking training or you're given a conference or even in a crowd, we, we generally coalesced into our, our mini tribes. You know, when I give training to law enforcement or something, all the different departments, they sit together. You don't have to tell people where to sit. People clump together according to their comfort and their tribe. It's just it's a natural human reaction. And so knowing that, you know, you can actually use your language to demonstrate that affiliation. I mean, that's what people do all the time. I mean, every time someone shares a story or an anecdote, which is most of life when engaging, all you're doing is demonstrating value and demonstrating affiliation. And and people just are so anxious to tell their side of the story, to tell the thing that they did on the weekend because they're seeking that validation and acceptance as well. They're not even listening to anyone else. They're just waiting for people to shut up so they can tell their story again because the brain is saying, go, 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 go. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued, 
at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Fascinating insights from Robin. Now that we've heard about the powers of the light side, let's dig into the dark side in our conversation with Chase Hughes. Well, we're really excited to have you on here today. So for listeners who might not be familiar with, with you and your story, tell us a little bit about your background and, and the world that you come from. Well, I, uh, I'm in the military and uh, grew up in the military pretty much. I uh, went to military school when I was a kid. And around the age of 19, I had this kind of epiphany experience to where I, I finally got the realization that I didn't really get human behavior. And I... It was a it was at a bar and I went home that night and I remember spending hours on Google just printing out every document I could find. Uh, I just went on there. I typed in how to tell when girls like you. And that was like that was the catalyst that served for me learning all of this and just kind of getting so deep into this. And and you've obviously gone very, very deep in this. Tell me about, you know, you, you named your book The Ellipsis Manual why ellipsis and what does that mean? We chose to name the company ellipsis because it's the, I think it's a grammatical or punctuation symbol where you have the three dots. And the meaning of that is just removed or omitted language or language that isn't there. And I, th I also just thought it sounded cool. So we, we use that as a company name just because it kind of has a little cool backstory to it. So you mentioned that you kind of started going down this rabbit hole by Googling uh, how to tell if women were interested in you. I find that really fascinating. You know, pickup and, and that kind of associated world is something that I've done a little bit of research and digging on. And it's amazing uh, all of the different kind of behavior patterns and things that you can really pick up on. Tell me a little bit about how that informed your journey into understanding a lot of the uh, nonverbal elements of human behavior and how to kind of design and engineer human behavior. Well, uh, when I first got started doing body language reading, it was very revealing because I spent a lot of time on it. And it, it got to a point where at first it, it's, it's depressing almost at the beginning because you just see that every human being is suffering in one way or another. And I think that, you know, we're all suffering so much that seeing the way that someone hides their suffering is usually the most powerful and revealing piece of information you can get. And after after that period, it, it kind of just humanizes everybody to the point where you can see those weaknesses or those fears or insecurities. And it's not a point of looking down on someone because you can see all that. It's It's a point of just that guy's just like me. That guy who used to be threatening is just as scared as I am in this situation or just as flawed as I am. And seeing that was just a huge eye opener for me that changed the way I see people forever. So I wanted more of that. And I, it, it's very addicting, especially when you really dig into it and spend some time learning behavior. It 
got to the point where I started doing uh, social profiling and behavior profiling. And then I got into conversations and how to analyze what people are saying. And then it got into like the hypnosis aspect of it. And then it got into behavior engineering and then interrogation started coming into it that kind of intertwined with some stuff I was doing. And it was just kind of a, a long uh, snowball effect of information that all kind of revolved around the main theme of trying to discover how uh, vulnerable all of us are. And, and in the end, it's, it's, it's kind of scary to see that, you know, we all walk around thinking that we've got some kind of firewall mechanism or some kind of antivirus system to where we know BS when we see it, but we don't. And just seeing through the development phase, like just seeing how weak we all are or how vulnerable we all are is a truly shocking uh, revelation. Tell me a little bit more about that. When you say seeing how weak and vulnerable everyone is, what does that mean? And, and how did you come to that conclusion? I wanted to see with persuasion, I wanted to see how far we could go. And I thought like the end, like the greatest thing, and this was maybe 10 years ago, I thought the greatest thing that we might be able to do is like create a Manchurian candidate in real life. And it turns out it's been done before uh, in a much different way where they use drugs and all kinds of dangerous stuff. But I thought maybe that there's some therapeutic application to that. Maybe we could work on depression or even schizophrenia with that kind of stuff. And going through that with the vulnerability aspect that you just asked about, I specifically mean how we can be talked into doing things that are not in our best interest very easily. So give me, give me an example of that. And how can somebody be either sort of manipulated or hacked into doing something that's not necessarily in their best interest? So a good example uh, would be if you look up people that are hypnotist bank robbers that go up to the bank and use some really just like preschool level skills, uh, of course, the guy might be uh, really suggestible behind the counter. But I think uh, some, an example of that would be you talking someone into doing something against their will, like buying something or going home with someone or using a business, using the skills for business negotiation or at a job interview. And, you know, I, I want to dig into specifically some of the tools and strategies around how to engineer that type of behavior. What are some of the tactics that you've seen, you know, from your research, from your work in the military, engineering human behavior that can help people either recognize when someone's trying to do that to them or use some of these strategies to influence others? Sure. I can give you guys some basic ones. And I want to touch on this uh, real quick, if you don't mind me going off a little bit here, Matt. When we see like one of those articles online about learn body language quickly or like quick tips to do X, Y, and Z, I think a lot of us grossly underestimate how much work is usually involved in mastering something or being really good at something. So like if you take a piano, for example, there's plenty of videos on YouTube where you can just walk through a song. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So to where you could just walk through a song and you might be able to maybe impress a few people for 30 seconds at a party. But to get really good at this, you'll need an investment in time. And 
one of the things I always kind of compare this to is like the first level would be like the paramedic and he knows some basic skills just enough to kind of be dangerous. And then you have a nurse who's studied for several years. Then you have a doctor who's studied this in depth and way down at the bottom underneath the paramedic, you have the guy who watches like Grey's Anatomy and thinks he's a doctor. So I think that just estimating how much time it will take is usually if, if you think it's less than a year to get really good at this stuff, uh, I would say more power to you. But this stuff is incredibly complex and it's far more complex than a piano. Uh, in fact, like if you can imagine mastering a piano and then every time you sat down at it, the keys were in different places. That's kind of where we're at with just basically human behavior engineering and with body language and behavior profiling. That's what makes the difference between really being able to influence someone and just knowing a few tricks. Because if you read an, any influence book nowadays, they're going to give you all these methods that are supposed to work for all people. But every single person that you talk to is, is different and is fundamentally different from the core of their being. And if you can't see that and you can't profile that and kind of tailor what you're saying and doing to meet that person's needs or their fears or weaknesses, whatever you're trying to do with that person – you're going to get some really basic level success. And that's why we tried to integrate every single part of this, every aspect inside of the ellipsis manual to be able to get that engineered scenario to where you can create an outcome that you'd like. So for your listeners specifically, I would say one of the main things you need to start doing every single day is disengage people's autopilot response. And the autopilot response is basically the roles that we play or the hats that we put on. So if you're at work, you have a work hat on and you talk to people as if you're at work. It's going to be completely different than the way you talk to your wife. It's going to be completely different than how you talk to your kids. So we change roles throughout the day. And once we get into a role, our neurons that have kind of connected for that role start to fire in sequence there just to where everything is kind of automated and we're not really paying much attention to what's going on. So when someone is auto and in autopilot, it's usually a role. So like an employee and a customer, that's one that you're probably going to encounter every single day. I would say breaking someone's autopilot is the most fantastic way to start capturing that focus and the attention that you're going to need. And breaking autopilot can be done with anything that breaks them out of their mental state. So if you're getting a coffee at Starbucks and you ask really quickly which direction northeast is, just to make them start, they've never been asked that question before, they start going internal to their, their head and they kind of break out of that employee mode for just a few seconds. And then you start doing what we call FIC, which stands for focus, interest, and curiosity, which you want to develop in sequence. And a really good technique for developing focus is just talking about focus. Does that make sense? Tell me more about that. Okay. I didn't know how far you wanted to go in here. Yeah, no, I want to dig into, I want to learn a lot. Tell me about FIC and tell me specifically about how we can kind of cultivate each of those pieces and, and then I still, I still want to drill down a little bit more as well and kind of how we can break someone out of a pattern. Okay. 
So thick is focus, interest, and curiosity. So the first part of that is focus. And the easiest way to establish or get someone to start focusing on you is to have authority. And I know you wanted to talk about that. And this would be a great segue to that. Perfect. Let's dig in. Let's dig into authority and then we'll come back to thick. Great. So let's talk about focus. The main way, the number one way that human beings start to focus on something or view it as important is when someone has authority. And authority is probably the most important thing that you can possibly master. So there's a thing in our brains called the reticular activation system or the RAS, which is kind of like a precursor to the fight or flight response. So this RAS is consistently looking for uh, threats, things that are threatening to you or things that are socially valuable. So if you're in a doctor's office, all of your attention is going to go to the doctor. If you get pulled over by the police, all of your attention is going to go to that person. If you're sitting in a restaurant and George Clooney walks in and starts talking to you, all of your attention, no matter what you were doing, is going to go to George Clooney. And that has to do with social authority or perceived authority. And I, I want my goal is to try to convince uh, your listeners that authority is more important and more effective than influence. The main reason being that have you, are you familiar with the Milgram study? Oh, yeah, definitely. OK, so just for your listeners who haven't heard of this. This was done at, at Yale University. That it was a, by a man named Dr. Stanley Milgram, whose parents were refugees from the Nazis. So he came to America and he did this study where a guy walks into a room and they say, oh, this is a learning experiment. There's a guy with a lab coat on in there taking down notes on a clipboard. And he says, you're going to shock this guy in the other room. And every time he gets this set of words wrong, so to speak. So the guy goes in the other room, gets hooked up to a shocking machine, and this other guy who's being experimented on is sitting there. He's supposed to shock this guy on the other side of this wall every time the guy gets words wrong. And the guy just keeps repeatedly doing it, and the guy continues to ramp up the voltage in accordance with the instructions of the guy wearing the lab coat. And it turned out that almost 80% of the people – who did this experiment shocked the person on the other side of the wall to the point of death to death and social psychologists before the experiment was conducted estimated that 0.011% of people would shock someone to death. And it was almost 80%. So a lot of people got some stuff out of that and they got a lot of scientific research out of that. But I took away something completely different. Of course, they got away like people who say I was just following orders like a lot of Nazis did after the, you know, they're brought in front of a tribunal for war crimes. But think about the authority aspect of this. A guy just standing there in a gray lab coat tells you to shock another human being to death and you do it. You don't stand up and leave. You don't protest. And of course, everyone, 100% of people would say, no, I would never do that. But then 80% of people do. So a man with no, no medical name tag on, he has no identifying marks other than he's just wearing a, a tie and a lab coat. And he's uttering phrases 
Uh, he's not ordering anyone to do it. He's just speaking phrases like it's important that the experiment continues or it's important that you continue. Just little phrases like that. So let's go back to influence and contrast these two things together. So with influence, uh, it might take you two hours to talk somebody into buying a new car per se. And a guy in a lab coat in less than 45 minutes suggested that a stranger kill another person and they did it. 80% of people, which is better than most sales numbers. That's with no neurolinguistic programming, no hypnosis, no Robert Cialdini influence methods, none of that. And you just had that tiny bit of authority, just that perceived social authority. The guy was a, a nobody. He was just a volunteer who was an actor. And uh, just that is enough to convince a stranger to commit murder, that tiny bit of social authority. That's fascinating. And the Milgram experiment, obviously, is one of the kind of groundbreaking and fundamental experiments in psychology. For listeners who want to dig in, we actually have a, a previous episode, which I'll link to in the show notes, where we go super deep on the authority bias. But I'm curious, tell me, you know, what are some of the, you, you write about and talk about the idea of hacking this sort of authority and how we can create it. What are some of the factors that we can, that we can use in order to hack authority? There are five basic qualities that dictate authority. And one of them is inter interchangeable and I'll give them to you now. They are dominance, discipline, leadership, gratitude, and fun, or just having a sense of adventure. And the first one, dominance, does not mean being domineering. Uh, you can be dominant and still be completely supportive and nice to everyone around you. It's a common misconception that you have to be mean or serious all the time in order to be dominant. Uh, you can be a really fun person and just, just be a natural leader. And the only thing that dominance can really be replaced with is ambition. So if you think about like the starving artist who – is opening a, a, a new art gallery or something like that. So that's the only thing that we found that can be replaced. So those five qualities really dictate whether or not other people respond to you, and especially the opposite sex, whether or not you will have that automatic kind of obedient response. And it's not necessarily an obedience response. What happens when we get exposed to authority, we go through what Dr. Milgram called an agentic shift. And while this shift is taking place, our brain actually shifts responsibility for our own actions onto the person that's telling us to do something. That is profound. And I think a lot of people really look over that piece of information when they read the research. You make a, sh a person makes a shift to where they no longer feel responsible for their actions, just in the presence of someone they think might be an authority figure. Uh, but developing that level of authority takes time. And I, it, it's, it's hard for me to get that point across to my students sometimes that somebody will come up and say, hey, man, I want to fly out there and um, do training with you for a few weeks. And somehow they've got all the money to do that. But they're the type of person who's got a pile of dishes in the sink. They've got clothes piled up in their bedroom. I know for a fact this guy does not make his bed every day. He doesn't even trim his fingernails. Like He doesn't even have his own life together, and he wants to come and learn how to take control of another human being. 
So you have got to master yourself first. And with the the students that I teach for private coaching, we have a, a, a few steps that you need to master environment first. If you're trying to get this authority, it has to start with the environment. It has to start with cleaning your house, living in a clean place, hanging out with good friends, then mastering your time, keeping a planner and really sticking to it and starting to learn how to discipline yourself into habits because discipline only needs to last long enough to get the habit done and then you're good. Then you can kind of cool off a little bit. You should only do one at a time. And after mastery of the environment, that then it becomes mastery of time. And after time, you start to master your mechanics every day. So what you're studying and mastering your attention span. So you pick one thing to do every day. Today, I'm going to study whether or not people are breathing from their chest or their stomach. Today, I'm going to watch pupil dilation. Today, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. But that developing the authority is almost more important than learning any kind of influence method. I know a lot of people really are into influence and they're into learning sales. But if you don't have that authority or you basically don't have your quote unquote shit together, you won't get the results you want. And I would like to suggest if your listeners could just try this on for a month or two, that the results you want socially, the results you want from other people, especially when someone's into studying influence, those things start to happen as a byproduct of you just making your life better and starting to master authority. We have one chapter in the Ellipsis Manual called Authority, and it talks about this, and it's got a step-by-step system, and it's got a bunch of ways to kind of hack it. And I'll give you a couple here if I'm not uh, droning on too long here, Matt. No, no, no. That's perfect. I'd love to hear some of those strategies. I think that'd be great. Okay. So if you guys want to start mastering authority today, start to express genuine interest in other people and make them feel interesting, not interested. Find out what they're excited about and remember the phrase leadership through support. Leadership through support. You have to make uh, the other people understand that you are genuinely interested in them. And that level of interest will start to help you get more comfortable with having authority uh, over other people. And because as soon as someone who's new or just starts studying this, they get that first taste of authority or somebody completely goes into the agentic state in front of them, it makes people immediately pull the plug and start to back out. Uh, It's a strange feeling, especially when it's your first time, not necessarily having control over another human, but having that authority for the first time is strange, but it is addicting. So it's a good thing, especially if you have good motives and you want to help others. And I would say, especially with people who are the alpha male types, who I would uh, I would not describe as alpha males, but the people who we think are alpha males are usually not the alpha males. They're the ones who want people to think they're alpha males because it's usually the the tiniest, the smallest dogs that bark the most. The chihuahua is always worried about getting attacked, and the giant dogs don't really feel the need to to bark. So dealing with those type of people, try what we call the Columbo method. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, Matt. Yeah, I, I mean, the uh, the old detective show. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I would say 
that is the point where you need to make some deliberate expression of insecurity. And you can still have authority and you can still make deliberate errors, like maybe look insecure on purpose or make a deliberate social error, like your shirt tail is hanging out or something like that. Those people need to feel dominant at the beginning of a conversation in order to relax. And it works the same in an interrogation room. If I paid a police officer to yell at me like I was in trouble as I was walking into the room or I tripped on purpose or had a giant coffee stain on my shirt. And it depends on who you're talking to. But I would say start working on yourself immediately. That is going to be the game changer for you. And we tend to seek things outside of us. We Like all of the stuff we see on, on the Internet – we think the products or the things are going to make us better, but I strongly encourage uh, your listeners to start from the inside out, especially when you're learning influence. And that will help you uh, basically to talk to strangers every day. And I think using that level of social skill, you should, you should be talking to a stranger every single day. You should make it a goal to discover a fact about a stranger in your area every single day. I love that strategy and, and something that I'm a big fan of is kind of the idea of rejection therapy and, and the whole notion of constantly be sort of putting yourself out there, failing, talking to people, pushing your comfort zone. And even something as, as, as simple as talking to a stranger every day can be a great way to start to get outside that comfort zone and, and work on your ability to interact and connect and talk to people. Absolutely. And I think the comfort zone thing is really what's going to hold people back and Starting a conversation starts to get easy. Then you need to take it to the next step because you're, you're back in your comfort zone once it becomes easy. Then you need to start going further. Wow. Some incredible philosophies and tactics on both sides of the fence. I hope you enjoyed this week's unique episode. And don't forget to go to successpodcast.com, sign up for our email list, and shoot me an email. I'll let you in on the secret. Am I on the side of the light? Or am I drawn to the power of the dark? See you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.